0: Please pray with me, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer, amen. Please be seated. I had the privilege this week of being at St. Michael's Conference um, up in Connecticut and teaching some, what were we en- ended up at, Jesse? Was it 84 or 86? Some 86 kids um, from freshman year of high school all the way through age 21. It was a great time. And one of the classes that I taught was, um, or I co taught, was a class on C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. And I want to begin with a section from that. So keep in mind what's going on in the screw tape letters. This is a demon. An elder demon instructing a younger demon about how to draw this new believing Christian away from the church and away from God. Okay? So everything's kind of flipped around. Good is bad and bad is good. He writes, screw tape, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church-going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, you ought to at least be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on real, real doctrinal issues about those The more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say Mass and those who say Holy Communion, when neither party could possibly state the difference between them. Hooker's doctrine or St. Thomas Aquinas' doctrine in any form that holds water for five minutes. And all on purely indifferent things. Candles, clothes, and whatnot. All those are admirable grounds for our activities. You see, what C.S. Lewis is writing about here is that while doctrine unites, the lesser things divide. And one of the enemy's ploys with the church is to divide it into factions and set it at war with itself. And so often we fall prey to it. That's what the Corinthian passage today is about. The two passages, we split it up between the first and second lesson, Um, but I invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, open up a pew Bible and look at it with me. And yes, I mean that because it's hard to track along with these sermons if you're not looking at God's Word and you don't have it in front of you in a scripture insert. So I encourage you to bring your Bible. You know, when you go to class in school, you bring your books. Bring your Bible or open a pew Bible. We'll go through it together. Don't be like the First Corinthians in this case. Chapter 3. I think there's three things that this passage is calling us to. First of all, we have to subdue the flesh. Second of all, we have to see ourselves as Christ's own. And third of all, we have to come to the table, to the Lord's table, with our gifts and offerings. Not expecting something, but with a heart of giving. So first of all, let's define what's going on with the flesh here. He says... To the people in Corinth, that they're infants. The actual Greek word is the word babes. Even, you know, young infants able to do nothing. And the word for flesh here is a word, sarkikos, meaning fleshly. And that doesn't mean like of the body, but it means of the old human nature. People who are unregenerate. There's another theological term, right? People who are not being enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And not because the Holy Spirit won't do it for them, but because they'll have none of it. Don't be fleshly, St. Paul says, and chastises them. Their adherence to secular attitudes, to the attitudes of Corinth, their values that undermine their own baptismal identity as Christ's own. their childishness stands in the way. St. Augustine writes of this passage: "Paul is not speaking of their bodies, but of their carnal spirits. What does he mean? He means that they're too much a slave to the things outside of the Holy Spirit, outside of Christ. They're too much a slave to the old ways. The things they've been saved from. But notice, he's not cruel to them. He's confrontational, but he still calls them infants. Why does he call them infants? Well, they're immature, but they're still family. They're still family. They're still part of the kingdom of God. But they've handicapped themselves because they're unwilling to grow. Paul then moves on to his evidence of this. Verse 3. For you're still of the flesh. For where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you were through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. To see the evidence of their infantness. It's their jealousy and their strife. They're quarreling It's the word that can be translated strife. They're dissension. They're factioning over stupid things. We see this in the church all the time, sadly. It's a testament against us. Why is this such a problem? Because the church is not ours to fracture. The church is not ours to create factions in. The church is not ours to sully or to spoil the church is God's you are God's you are not your own we're told that you were bought with a price paul says elsewhere right you're not your own jesus bought you and as such we're fellow workers in the field we're fellow laborers in god's kingdom in the church leadership is and followers are both servants leaders and followers are both servants assigned by God and appointed for certain tasks and woe to us woe to us when for non-doctrinal reasons for non-reasons that don't have to deal with dogma with the truth of what Christ has revealed to us woe to us if we cause scandal to the church You see, in the world's way of things, in Corinth's way of things, Paul and Apollos should be competitors. Let me tell you why. In ancient Rome, there's this system of patronage. So the idea was that if you were a great man, if you truly wanted to be a statesman and a pillar of your community, you would go out and you'd do little favors for people. And then they, in turn, would support you when they went to the polls. Boy, that hasn't changed. But you see, that system is what is trying, the, the Corinthians are trying to implement in the church. That's what's going on here. Paul's chastising, first and foremost, the leadership. They're trying to gain wealth, authority, power by assembling and dividing up the clients, right? That's the technical term, patrons and clients. They're trying to, to carve up different segments, different geographies of, of not geographies, um, factions of the church. And they're trying to set them against each other because when they battle, guess what? The leaders get more authority. Hmm, Again, is this ringing a bell? This happens in modern America. Jesus makes it clear, though, that with the church, that's not how things work. The point is that Jesus is trying to show that in doing this, they're undermining the gospel. They're undermining the very thing that Paul and Apollos worked so hard to plant and water. Do you see? Look with me at Matthew chapter 20, verse 8. Because this is also the point that Jesus makes. It was our gospel passage, Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 8, let's look at. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired were hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired came fir- first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled to the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. How have you made them equal to us? who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as do I give to you. am, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Paul is calling them out because they're acting like children, egoistic, self-centered, desiring to look good in front of whoever's watching, trying to bolster their position on the backs of others. And they're hurting the church. Paul's making the point that both he and Apollos are equal servants. They we're called by God to this field, to Corinth. But they're not the problem. It's their followers who are. But the Corinthians want to do their own thing. And it's fleshly thinking. And it's hurting the church. Using Paul's analogy, it would be really foolish on a farm, right? On a produce farm, if a planter and a waterer tried to compete, right? If the planter went out and said, I'm better than you, irrigator. And the irrigator came out and said, nah, I'm better than you, planter. I mean, they're apples and oranges. What, why would you even try to compete on that? You're, you're trying, instead, you should be working towards a common goal, towards a common purpose. There's a great meme I saw on Facebook this week. Um, perhaps you've seen it. I can't remember the picture because I'm brain dead, forgive me, <laughs> from this week, but the caption under it said, preach the gospel and be forgotten. Preach the gospel and be forgotten. You know, that's really hard for those of us that work in the church. We want to leave a legacy. We want to be remembered. And it's hard for us to resist. But if we're to be mature Christians, we're to do that because the legacy will speak for its own. Our church will speak for us, right? In the lives that have changed. But it's a lesson to all of us as Christians. You see, immature Christians do things that help themselves and bolster themselves up. They become arrogant. They become puffed up. Again, they're like children. Let me give you another example. Once in a while, I go and spend time with my nephews and niece now. And once in a while, the older child puffs himself up and says, instructing the young one, you shouldn't do that. Stop that. Right? It's cute at first. But it shows the older one's true colors. You see, the parent instructs out of love, but the older child instructs out of tyranny. And that soon becomes really apparent, doesn't it? You see, that's another way to show the contrast to what St. Paul's talking about here, that leaders in the church are supposed to instruct out of love, and that we're not to be tyrannical toddlers over one another. We're to call each other to account for sure but not tyrannically. St. Paul's reminding them that they are God's building. They are God's temple. He, he moves between three things, right? He goes from field um, to, to building to temple. And he's using these illustrations for the people in Corinth because remember back, way back at the, the, well not too way back, back when we were in the park, we were talking about who makes up the church of Corinth. These are libertini. These are people who were tradesmen, and they've advanced because of their labor. So do you see he's using this instruction to them to show them, to show them from their own experience what they're to do. And they're all to be builders, and you're to be builders. You're to be builders too. Continue with me on, at verse 12 and 13 of chapter 3. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test of what sort of work each one has done. And if, anyone, and if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. What's he saying here? But not all work is equal. Gold, silver, stones versus wood, hay, and straw. It will be revealed on the day. And we're to, reveal, we're to read that word, the day, here as the day of judgment. St. Paul writes in Romans 14, verse 11, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. And verse 12, so each of us will give an account of himself to God. Notice St. Paul doesn't talk about losing salvation here. But what's he talking about? He's talking about having lasting works or not. What makes for lasting work? Often they look the same. It's not the value it's what's behind the work. Is it intended to please God and build up his church? Or is it intended to enhance ourselves? God only can see the difference. But on the day of judgment, all will be revealed. And we'll all have to give an account for how we treated his bride. And it's ironic, right? Because at the same time, we all are part of the church. We all are his bride. So what's he saying? How we treat one another reflects how we are. Our works towards one another are not unimportant. They help us either become more like Christ or less. And while our salvation is secure, we might be having building with shoddy material. I find it interesting, and I didn't get too much into it, but it's interesting that St. Paul talks about shoddy materials, but then also talks about great materials. And shoddy materials are of little use in the hands of the best contractors. And great materials are not very useful in the hands of poor contractors. Just see? It seems that what Paul's saying is that people with great talent are unable to build due to their spiritual immaturity. Their potential is restricted by their attitude and their human desires, by what lies beneath the deed. Likewise, there are those with raw talent, with lots of material, who would be able to do so much more if they were taught how to by good leaders. This is a foreshadowing, friends, of chapter 12 that we'll get to where Paul talks about the body of Christ. But you see the main point here. Arrogance, a lack of self-submission, a lack of letting the Holy Spirit work in you inhibits growth in the church and causes scandal and faction. Sometimes those who are spiritually immature are blind to it, but that's not the case here. In this case, it's willful. The Corinthians' inability to receive solid food was not by nature, says St. Chrysostom, but by choice. So they are without excuse. The results are always the same. The fruit is always the same. Toxicity, division, hurt, scandal, people leaving the church because of how others act in it. We've all seen it. Particularly bad because it doesn't just besmirch the church, it besmirches the soul of the individual person, right? People say, I won't go back to church because that's how they operate there. They're hypocrites. People say, well, I just can't bring myself to go. It's sad. But that's the fruit of being puffed up and arrogant. You become useless to God. Become hurtful to yourself. Neither end serves Jesus or his bride, the church. And all come when we, when we have that attitude. We come to the altar, we come to the table wanting something, rather than coming to the table giving something. In a sense, we all need Jesus, Right? We can't even approach God without Jesus. We can't even approach the altar without gaining something. But if we come to the altar demanding something, we'll get nothing. Nobody has a right to be part of the church. No one has a right to be a leader in the church. However, God of his great love calls us to be part of the church. God of his great love invites us and makes a way through Jesus Christ for us to not just exist together, but grow together. You see, the medicine needed here is humility and submission. And that medicine is no easier in our day than it was in Christ's. Just think back on the passage we read from the gospel. What does Jesus say? I can be generous with what belongs to me Who are you to ask about it, right? Not one of us deserves, but all are called to be part of the church. However, if we're going to live as a family, if we're going to live as Christ's bride, we're called to subdue the flesh, to not be childish. We're called to see ourselves as Christ's own, first and foremost, not as our own. We're called to come to the table with offerings, not agendas. So let's examine ourselves. Let's let the word of God here prod around in our hearts because not one of us is without fault here. We've all seen the bitter fruit of what Paul's talking about. Have we participated in it? Have we asked forgiveness for it? Have we repented? and run away from that way? Have we put away those childish ways? Or do they still need to be pushed out? Where do we need to, sub- to subdue the flesh and submit? Where do we need to put ourselves in Christ's hands and not our own? The promise is great. If we do, if we do, God will make a great building of us, not in the physical sense of the word, but we'll use this place, we'll use this congregation, we'll use this, hopefully soon, to be parish, to create works that last, and souls who are saved, and people who are fed and grow into the image of Christ. Doesn't that sound great? Let's do it. Let's let the Holy Spirit work in us and not fall prey to screw tape, not fall prey to the enemy who would seek to divide. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.